Hello and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about Europe's role in diplomacy between Tehran and Washington. We take a look at how Europe helped nuclear negotiations and a nuclear deal happen in the past, how they helped the deal survive the Trump years of maximum pressure on Iran, and how Europeans can help the incoming Biden administration revive diplomacy and engagement with Iran. My guest today is Azadeh Zamiri Rat. She is deputy head of the Middle East and Africa Division at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. Azadeh specializes on Iran's foreign and nuclear policy and provides advice to the German government and the Bundestag. Azadeh, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Azadeh, let's talk about the assassination of the Iranian nuclear scientist first um, that just happened a few days ago. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh was an important figure in Iran's nuclear program, and he was assassinated just outside of Tehran. What are the responses and reactions to that, both in Germany and also in other European capitals? Well, I mean, let me start with maybe saying that I think that whoever was behind these types of attacks wasn't really looking to stop an alleged nuclear weapons program. I mean, an assassination wouldn't make much of a difference here, um, but apparently wanted two things, uh, either provoke an Iranian reaction that might lead to a military escalation or at least limit any prospects of a diplomatic solution um, under the new Biden administration. And this was not the first time, obviously, that an Iranian nuclear si- scientist was assassinated. This wasn't even the first time an Iranian was uh, an, an assassination target this year. Just think of Rasim Soleimani's uh, death in January. But what is particularly worrisome for me is to see how the boundaries of international law have been moved continuously in the past decade, and not only by autocratic systems, but to a large degree by democracies themselves. And this should be alarming to us. But, and this brings me to your question, I don't see that adequately reflected in the reactions and statements of European officials, with mm-hmm. very few exceptions. Um, obviously, we hear different sides, you know, um, calling for restraint on all sides. But I think they need to be very clear on this matter that these kind of extrajudicial killings need to stop. They violate international law. They hinder diplomatic solutions. They just generally increase the risk of war and are overall ineffective to solve any kind of complex security issues. So I think it's very important to make that clear. And they also run actually counter to European interests and anything that the EU stands for or at least hopes to stand for. And I think that European foreign ministers and head of states should be loud and clear in rejecting these kind of extra legal killings, regardless of where they occur. Iran cannot be treated as an exception if we are serious about upholding international norms and standards. And if we don't take an unequivocal stance here, I think we only contribute to further normalizing these kind of assassinations as a very normal foreign policy tool. And other states take note of that, including the Islamic Republic. I agree with you both on the point where you're talking about how the aims are political to either provoke Iran and or to complicated future diplomacy. And also, like you're saying, we didn't hear a very strong pushback on this from European capitals. The former head of CIA here in the U.S., John Brennan, was pretty um, vocal against this assassination. And very immediately he called it a criminal act. He called it reckless and dangerous and even urged Iran 
Iranian leadership to not retaliate quickly and just wait as responsible leadership, as he called it, responsible leadership returns in America. But why do you think that is in Europe? Why wasn't the, t- the pushback or at least the public statements as strong as you are saying they should be? And also, at least the pro-diplomacy camp in Iran has been expecting from Europe uh, to come against the strong. Why do you think um, the weakness? Well, I think from Berlin's perspective, at least it's common, let's say, from policy language. As long as there are no um, there, as long as there's no clear evidence of who was behind these kind of attacks, if there's no clear evidence that it was a state, um, then they're very hesitant to come forward and say that this was an extrajudicial killing because it could have been a terrorist attack by, let's say, some separation group or something like that. So you will hear these kind of explanations where Berlin in particular is more um, hesitant to, to come forward here. But I think there would be ways around that without pointing the fingers. Um, I think still that on a very principled basis, European capitals need to come forward and say, and this is not the first time, so this wouldn't be an exception here, and say that if states use these kind of foreign policy tools of belief that these are adequate foreign policy tools, that we stand against it. This, the, this is not something that we would accept as being compatible with European values and anything that Europe actually stands for, from a moral point of view, from an international norms point of view, from an international law point of view. So I think it would be much needed to have this kind of messaging because, as I said also, Iran takes note of that. And not only Iran, other nations as well. We cannot... Um, you know, stand idly by and let these things happen and send the message that if these things happen to certain countries, we will not take the same kind of language that we might use if they had happened in different ones. Mm -hmm. And um, you're absolutely true. It's the double standard that I think rightfully many in Iran are pointing at that if Iran plots or launches a terror attack, which Iranians have been doing across the world, um, everyone is quick to condemn it, and rightfully. But it seems like in uh, in a reverse situation, um, there there is at least a double standard in how strong the condemnation is. And I want to also move um, a little bit beyond the justice assassination and the general policy. Um, of Europe in the past four years under President Trump's uh, maximum pressure policy against Iran, the withdrawal from the nuclear deal, and eventually the increasing of sanctions and the past year, which we saw increased tensions between Tehran and the U.S. My understanding from Tehran is that the Iranians expected a lot more from Europe, from European powers, the E3. And to, at least when the U.S. decided to pull out of the nuclear deal, we saw very strong political statements coming out of Europe. But in reality, when it came to the economic benefits of the nuclear deal, the Europeans weren't able to deliver as much as Tehran expected. Let's unpack that a little bit and hear your perspective from Germany and also from Europe on how that unfolded, the Europe's response to maximum pressure, the unraveling of the deal, which the Europeans disagreed with, and they urged Trump to not do, but they kind of 
came along without being able to make up for it so much. Do you agree? Yes, I do agree um, in the sense that obviously expectations were high in Iran vis-a-vis -vis Europeans and what they would be capable of, of accomplishing. Um, but let me start maybe by saying that I think Europeans played a very crucial role throughout the history of the nuclear negotiations. And I think we mm -hmm. need to acknowledge that. It was the E3 that actually entered nuclear talks with Iran in 2003 at a time when Washington was uh, severely opposed to this kind of approach. Um, and Europeans back then were very much concerned about another possible U.S. intervention in the region after Iraq. And they also wanted to prevent another major nuclear proliferation crisis after North Korea had withdrawn from the NPT earlier that year. So finding a solution in the nuclear crisis with Iran was actually seen as a vital to European interests. And um, the European security strategy of 2003 defined the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction as potentially greatest threat to European security. So Europe was pretty invested right from the start, from a security point of view, first and foremost, not from an economic point of view. Um, and in many ways, of course, the, the nuclear agreement, the JCPOA, was a major foreign policy accomplishment for the European Union after more than 12 years of negotiations. And some would even regard it the biggest foreign policy achievement. So Europeans weren't willing to give up on that that easily after Trump announced that they wouldn't you know, no longer stick to U.S. commitments. Plus, it was really difficult to justify given that the IAEA had confirmed that Iran was seriously fully implementing its um, obligations in the deal. And the Europeans have taken a number of measures since then, including the establishment of INSTEX as an alternative financial mechanism independent of the US dollar that would allow for continued economic cooperation with Iran. But overall, as you said, um, Europeans were not able to deliver on the economic front, at least not substantially. And it has become painfully clear that they lack the necessary autonomy to pursue their own interests even on European soil, which is shameful. And overall, I think European efforts were way below Iranian expectations. Um, but I would also still like to add that at least you could say that I think maybe without European support, we, we wouldn't have a JCPA any longer. They, they took an important stance in the UN Security Council also over the summer when the Trump administration once again tried to kill the deal by extending the arms embargo and by trying to trigger the snapback mechanism. And I think that was significant for Europe to take that stance, to be very outspoken um, against its traditional ally. So I think Europeans overall, they have shown their political commitment to the nuclear deal, but unfortunately, that is just not enough to save it. I agree. Europe's role, and sometimes we tend to forget this, um, or it's been overlooked, was, was essential, crucial in starting the negotiations and getting them to the point of the nuclear deal, both the European Union and also uh, European powers. And as you were saying, they've stood by the deal very strong politically, but again, as discussed economically, it wasn't as much as Iran expected. But let's talk about um, the road ahead. The Trump administration is leaving the White House in a few weeks. Biden is going to start his presidency, and he has promised re-engaging with Iran and restarting diplomacy. First of all, what role can and should Europe play, in your opinion, in the weeks ahead, in the next less than two months, six, seven weeks that are left of the Trump administration with this assassination we just saw and other people are predicting maybe more provocations will be in the works uh, by Trump 
the Trump admin or his allies to try to provoke Iran into a military conflict. What do you think in the next few weeks Europe can and should be doing to basically pave the way for re-engagement with Iran? Right. I mean, I think, first of all, we need to use the time in the upcoming weeks um, within the joint commission among the remaining parties to the agreement to uh, think about how to really start the process of a possible U.S. return. I think there needs to be some consensus among the remaining parties that this would be something um, that everyone would support and that would be something that would be ideal and everyone would strive towards. Um, because the goal eventually must be to bring all sides back into full implementation. And I think um, it will be much on Europe also to kind of urge the Biden administration after January 20th um, to really give a clear message that they intend to return to the deal. So I think some of the coordination efforts that are needed beforehand among the remaining parties, these are areas where the Europeans can play a significant role. Overall, I also think that apart from very, let's say, technical issues and maybe security issues where some of these areas, there's not that much that Europe can do, let's say, when it comes to prevent, um, to preventing another escalation here. But I think what is important is that Europe still has a role to play when it comes to being the actor that at least provides some sort of credibility and trust. And this is a necessity, I think, as we move forward into new rounds of talks and negotiations. I think it's important to note that we are not just going back to square one when it comes to talks. In many ways, we are you know, far worse off when it comes to credibility and trust. If you look at Iranian nuclear discourse around 2003, a lot of people were quite hesitant um, to enter talks with the Europeans. A lot of people didn't trust um, Europeans, didn't trust the United States later on during negotiations. A lot of opponents of any kind of engagement basically saying that the US wouldn't be willing and Europeans wouldn't be capable. But these were essentially assumptions. There was no precedence for, for these kind of um, assumptions. But now, after 2015, after the experience of the nuclear deal, these assumptions have actually turned into realities. It has become much easier for opponents of any kind of engagement to make this argument that that's exactly what we said. Europe, the, the United States wouldn't be willing, they wouldn't be credible, they wouldn't be serious about talks. And Europeans, even if they were serious about talks, they wouldn't be capable to do these kind of things. So we have a much bigger kind of credibility deficit than we had before. We already started with little trust and now we have even less. And here I think even though of course there's a lot of criticism towards Europe at this point in Iran and a lot of frustration and a lot of expectations have not been met, still I believe that with their very clear stance in the UN Security Council over the summer, with their very clear stance throughout this whole process of these past years since the Trump administration decided to get out of the deal, Europe has shown its political will. It has shown that there is a minimum of credibility there. And I think you will need that during negotiations. You will need a Western actor at the table as well, that people in Iran who are pro-engagement, who want to see a political solution um, to, to happen and come about, to point to that and say, see, there is some political will. There is an actor that has proven on this front, at least, that they are credible and that they are serious about upholding the deal. So I still believe that Europe has a very important role to play. 
Um, yes, I think that's a very important point that you mentioned and also the importance of Europe. I guess when things go wrong, there's a lot of blame going around, including at Europe. But for the things that went right or Europe's role, key role in trying to uh, save whatever's left of diplomacy and the deal, um, I don't think they're given enough credit. It's good that you mentioned that. Now, let's talk about after uh, the next few weeks when the Trump administration has left in January and the Biden team starts. We already know President elects Biden's uh, incoming team. He's picked Anthony Blinken for his Secretary of State, who has to be approved by the U.S. Senate, of course, and his National Security Advisor. Um, Jake Sullivan, and interestingly, John Kerry, who was in charge of um, basically the nuclear negotiations, will also have a senior role in the administration as the person in charge of climate, but he will sit in on national security meetings where Iran will be discussed. What do you think the road ahead will look like and what should the Biden team do to be able to re-engage with Iran and restart diplomacy in a successful way come January? I think the, the end goal should be to bring all sides back into full implementation. And we currently have a deal in place that effectively no side is really fully implementing anymore at this point. Mm -hmm. So that, that state is obviously not sustainable. I think what is needed right from the start is a very clear message from the Biden camp that there is an intent to return. And then we can start the process of figuring out and agreeing upon how to bring that about. Obviously, the JCPOA itself never had an exit clause. It doesn't have a return clause. So we need some um, coordination beforehand to see how we could move things forward. It might be enough for the U.S. to just declare their intention to come back and for the remaining parties to just accept that request. But these things can be discussed in, in the joint commission, um, as I said before, in the next couple of weeks amongst the remaining parties. Um, and I think the joint commission just provides a good platform to start things off. Um, overall, I think talks will take time, but the U.S. should immediately at least stop interfering with the implementation of the deal, the way that the Trump administration interfered, including in the U.N. Security Council and um, on the sanctions front. I mean, the, the United States didn't just leave the deal. They didn't just stop implementing. They actually actively prevented others from, from implementing it. And this has mm -hmm. to stop. I think that would be a very important message to send by taking steps that show that the U.S. is not sabotaging the deal anymore um, until we get to the point where we have compliance for compliance um, or a full re U.S. return. Um, and reissuing nuclear waivers, for instance, would be an important step in that regard. This will be important to also put Iran in a better position to reverse some of its nuclear activities. Um, most of Iran's, not all, but most of these nuclear activities are reversible. But Iranian compliance and sanctions relief are actually quite intertwined in many areas. Take the issue of uranium stockpile, for instance. Iran has by far exceeded the limit of enriched uranium that it is allowed to store under the agreement. But in the past, Iran used the option to export the surplus to Russia. But in order for companies to be able to do that again, sanctions in that area would have to be lifted first. So there's a very close interconnection between Iranian compliance and sanctions relief as well. Well, so issuing such waivers and lifting some of these sanctions, I think, would facilitate Iran's return to full compliance. And that should be in the interest of the Biden administration. So these are I think, some of the early steps that they could take to show serious in intent to at some point really come back to full compliance for full compliance.
I also want to uh, talk about other issues other than the nuclear deal that we know the U.S. and even Europe is interested in discussing. But first, I want to, before we get to that part, I want to talk about um, an issue that we hear from certain uh, circles in Washington, um, even in among the Democrats, which is the concept of leverage. We hear this talk that the Trump era or maximum pressure has failed, but nevertheless, President Trump has issued a bunch of sanctions on Iran and that the Biden team shouldn't just make a quick and automatic return to the JCPOA. They should use this pressure or these sanctions offered by Trump as leverage to take more concessions from Iran. What do you think about that? And do you also hear this talk of so-called leverage from um, governments in Europe? I mean, there are some maybe in Europe that also hope that um, you could use some leverage maybe against Iran to get further concessions on different fronts. But generally, my understanding is that the Europeans right now are more concerned about taking quick steps to de-escalate on the nuclear front and prevent Iran from increasing its nuclear activities. I mean, the longer we wait with these kind of steps, the more complicated solving these kind of issues will be. And the more leverage we think we have and try to put in place, the more leverage Iran will also try to um, gain and accumulate. So I think this, this very talk of leverage and how to use it is highly counterproductive and I think we need to be very mindful of the kind of messaging that we use vis-a-vis -vis Iran in this very, very sensitive time, particularly in the upcoming weeks. If we give this message to Iran that this is going to be far more than just coming back into full implementation, this is, will require Iran to make major concessions on a large you know, array of, um, of topics and issues, um, then we risk things getting even more difficult and things escalating and Iran taking even more serious and concerning steps. So this whole talk of leverage and how to use it is counterproductive. And it's also another area where the Biden administration could prove again, or at least that will be the perception in Tehran, that they are not credible. They've said time and again that they were against maximum pressure, that this was not an effective policy. But if they try now to use that, some of this kind of leverage that was created through that kind of pressure, then again, this is something where Iranians would point to and say, see, again, this is not a credible actor here. They are not serious about talks. They want to use this kind of leverage to get even more concessions. And I think, as I said, that would only make things much, much more difficult. I think that's an excellent point. And it also points to not only why the Trump policy failed by thinking that piling up more sanctions will give you more leverage to then take more concessions. And we saw how that didn't happen with President Trump and Mike Pompeo, um, as he had 12 demands for Iran and not a single one on one of them has been met under maximum pressure. But it's also a matter of principle. If the Democrats or the incoming Biden team have been criticizing the Trump um, administration's policy for four years, how can you use the same tools as um, leverage to push your own policy? And like you're saying, it's going to create an issue of credibility. I also want to talk about um, in tandem with other issues because it's we know that it's not just Iran's nuclear program now under the Obama time the US and European allies 
decided to only and first prioritize and focus on nuclear issue. But we know that there's other issues, Iran's missile program, Iran's regional adventures, um, and then potentially domestic policies and human rights inside the country that are of interest to both Washington and also to U.S.'s allies in Europe. But then there's also this issue of time, the timing for when Biden comes in and for the Rouhani team uh, Rouhani's remainder of his uh, second and final term is a very short time, as I see it, a window of opportunity. How do you think things can unfold in those few short months, less than even five months, I think, when Biden and Rouhani will coincide? And then in regards to these other issues and then that question of leverage that we see a lot of people bring into the discussion. I think that we can use this time to de-escalate and take, you know, the first necessary steps that we've already been talking about. I'm not so optimistic that we will have achieved kind of full return to the JCPA by any side um, until the Iranian presidential elections of next year. I'm not optimistic that it can be done within this kind of time frame that you have just mentioned. Um, but we, this doesn't mean that we cannot take steps that would de-escalate and steps that would be necessary to keep us on the right path and build on that. On the question of, um, you know, other issues beyond the nuclear fire, regional issues, missile program, um, I think Europeans at least no longer want to treat the nuclear issue entirely separate from other areas of concern anymore. And that includes uh, regional activities and the ballistic missile program. I think the type of compartmentalization that we saw in 2015 no longer seems to hold. And in fact, all sides have actually given up on compartmentalizing, including Iran. Um, also, Iran has... Uh, you know, furthered its interests in the region in the past five years and even made progress on its uh, ballistic missile program. So Europe will want to address the, these issues in the midterm, at least, um, and is hoping that there can be transatlantic realignment on the Biden that would allow for a joint approach. But here I think, and I do think that in the midterm, progress is possible. But I do, again, think that progress in the nuclear realm is actually a precondition. We can't do all these things simultaneously. If we keep adding things to the pile and piling, you know, up even more issues before solving some of the previous ones, um, we won't really make, make much progress here. As to the question of the whole human rights issue and the nuclear file, I think that too often there's an attempt to pit these two issues against each other. And this seems to be based on this kind of misconception that you cannot support both the nuclear deal and human rights in Iran or that supporting the nuclear deal um, with Iran would contradict any efforts on the human rights front. But they're mm -hmm. not it's framed a lot as appeasing of the Iranian regime right. and therefore giving them a hand in abusing or violating human rights when you negotiate with them on the nuclear issue. Right. But these two things are actually not mutually exclusive. I mean, understandably, a great deal of frustration um, has you know been going around. We haven't seen progress on the human rights front, and on the contrary, and the nuclear issue has certainly dominated the Iran debate uh, in Europe for sure, and in other uh, in other places as well. And that is a problem. But it is tragic that after twelve years of negotiations, when we finally reached a deal that was working, 
we were thrown back into crisis mode um, by a fundamentally flawed US policy of maximum pressure that has led us where we are now, where we still have to spend time on preventing another potential nuclear proliferation crisis and have had to do so for two and a half years now. This time could have been better spent to address a number of other Iran-related issues through a collective transatlantic approach. But we were not only incapable of achieving much progress on the human rights front, I think even worse, we even added to already existing Pressure and, pressure and misery among the Iranian population through a very mm. drastic sanctions regime that was mercilessly imposed by Washington and also through a lack of European capability to counter these kind of um, sanctions on a broader scale. So I think we need to find more time and more political capital to invest in other areas, including the nuclear, uh, including the human rights issue, of course. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of our resources are still unnecessarily um, has to be put into the nuclear issue because we are again in a crisis mode that we had actually already solved a couple of years ago. And let's also talk a little more about the past four years under President Trump. And it wasn't only the issue of Iran, it was U.S. foreign policy in the region, in, in the Middle East, that didn't necessarily coincide with uh, the European view on many issues. How did the past few years unfold? I know you focus on the Iran file, but just the general U.S. policy towards the region, the wars in the region, the conflicts, and um, how do you think those those dynamics, the changes of the past four years, impacted U.S.-Europe relations? I think for Europe, this kind of, let's say, lack of a really strategic Middle Eastern approach by the Trump administration has posed challenges. This is not to say that Europe would have a Middle Eastern strategy of its own. It, it doesn't really. Um, but obviously, some of the kind of approaches that the Trump administration took that seem to be more, um, you know, trying to address or frame it as some kind of peace initiative, something that would move peace and diplomacy forward in the region were actually either ineffective or counterproductive. So there hasn't been much, um, let's say, overlap in in the kind of perceptions that the Europeans would follow when it comes to effective policies in the Middle East and what we've seen from the Trump administration. And this was most certainly the case with regard to maximum pressure towards Iran, which had regional repercussions, which were problematic, of course, from a European point of view. The problem that Europeans, of course, also have is that it is their immediate neighborhood. If something escalates in a region, they're immediately and directly affected. So there has been a large degree of frustration in Europe with foreign policy approaches by the Trump administration, this whole policy of maximum pressure that was actually harmful on, on every front, was harmful to the Iranian population, It made humanitarian trade so much more difficult. It weakened Iranian middle class, weakened civil society activities in Iran, gave rise to hardline forces. It was not effective in the sense that it did not reduce Iran's regional engagement. We even saw more regional engagement from Iran, causing more problems for the European Union. It did not um, really bring Iran to the point where they would accept tougher terms on the nuclear program. Again, here it was not effective. And more than that, it was just counterproductive because we saw a more assertive regional policy by Iran. We saw increasing nuclear activity. We see Iran being closer to a nuclear we weapon capability. And we permanently see a risk of military escalation with these kind of killings 
acts of sabotage that are happening on all sides, on the Iranian side, on the Saudi side, on the Israeli side. Um, so overall, I think from a European perspective, Trump's policies in the region have made the region less secure, have increased the risk of escalation, have hindered you know, the few diplomatic kind of avenues that were still there. So the degree of frustration is, is immense. And there weren't really, there wasn't really much that you could, um, you know, use as a basis for a joint transatlantic approach here. And obviously, Europe is hoping that this might change under a Biden administration. And finally, Ezra, I want to talk about this new discussion that we hear from the Iranian side of an idea of a guarantee. Like we're talking about how the Trump years have made so much damage to not just credibility, but also diplomacy and the achievements of the Iran deal. And there are some circles that I hear from Iran that are seeking some form of a um, of a guarantee that if Biden rejoins the deal, that again, the next administration will not be able, the U.S. administration, to leave. How much of this talk do you hear or at all from Europe? And do you think that's even possible or it's a serious issue that's being put out by the Iranians? I think this issue is very serious because it is natural to ask yourself, um, whether it's worthwhile entering another compromise and agreement if you have no guarantee in place that this one would last longer than the last one. Particularly if you know that it wouldn't matter if you really stuck to your side of the agreement or not. That's a very difficult, uh, very difficult position. Um, so I think the discussion is serious and it is valid. In terms of being realistic, I mean, there's no real mechanism that you can put in place that would guarantee a state to stick to its agreement um, no matter what. I mean, the United States didn't just withdraw from the nuclear agreement. There are a number of international agreements that they um, decided to just abandon. And we see that it's very difficult to hinder these the states from taking this kind of action. So the question is, how can we at least put mechanisms in place that give it a little bit more strength, a little bit more sustainability, maybe make it a little bit less vulnerable. And these are issues that are being discussed in Europe. These are, I think, very principal issues that Europeans are asking themselves as well. How can we have sustainable international agreements? How, how can we you know, establish mechanisms that would make us, put us in a little bit of a better position here? Some of the talks and discussions that we hear from the Iranian side um, are about the mechanism of snapback, for instance. I mean, we could think about um, maybe changing the snapback mechanism um, in turning it into a collective snapback option or a majority rule when it comes to snapback. These are, you know, small ideas or steps that could be taken to at least change some of the disadvantages that were built in in the agreement when it came to Iranians posi Iran's position. Iran essentially didn't have any means within the agreement to counter this kind of um, U.S. Um, activity and action. That's a problem. I think if we think about a more sustainable agreement, we need to put mechanisms in place that allow different actors to respond and also get rid of some of the, you know, um, asymmetries that we've seen within this framework that put certain states um, at a bigger advantage, um, at a better advantage here. But in the end, and I have to say that it all comes down to trust and confidence. The nuclear deal was supposed to be a confidence-building measure. It completely failed on that front um, because of U.S. actions here, unfortunately. So we need to, you know, start 
start again, but also start from a more difficult point, as I said before, and build this confidence and trust again. We can do that, you know, by taking small steps. But this is, again, where I think we will not have these kind of issues solved within the next six months. It will probably take a much longer time. And this very idea of how to make international agreements a little bit more sustainable is definitely something that Europeans will take seriously and think about more seriously also in the, I believe, upcoming years. Well, on that note, Azade, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you very much. That was Azade Zamiri Rod, Deputy Head of Middle East and Africa at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, joining me from Berlin. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast apps and follow on Twitter at Iran podcast. Until next time. Goodbye.